0: Malaya. I'm Colleen Sebigny, and this is Yoga for Life. There's an underlying belief that somehow we aren't enough, that we are unworthy, frauds, and losers. In Yoga for Life, we will uncover these self-imposed limitations that are keeping us from contentment and freedom. We will talk about caring too much what others think, fear of not adding up, seeking comfort, divorce, aging, relationships, grief, power, and of course, sex, one of my favorite topics. In this podcast, you can expect open, real, and raw dialogue about what keeps our hearts heavy, spirit hidden, and potential limited. We will give you yoga tools to peel back the layers, to find compassion and love for the person that is living in your body, and to learn to live the present moment fully with all of its glory and its pain. You're listening to Yoga for Life, a Himalaya learning production. For exclusive content like yoga videos to accompany the podcast that you've just heard, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. So I'm going to announce the winners of the 90-day free access to the Himalaya learning. Thank you all for writing your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It was actually impossible to pick three, so I had to do it somewhat randomly If you're listening to this and you are one of the chosen ones, then please DM me with your email and we will get you your access. If I don't get all three DMs, we'll come back and read a couple of more. This one is from g Michelle. She says, This podcast has touched my heart and soul. Colleen has such a gift to reach many people. I have been through therapy for many years, but this podcast is it. It's changed my inner talk and how I see myself and others. We are blessed for these deep talks. Thank you. Thank you. This is from M.J.E.H.R. How beautiful it is to listen to Colleen and the wisdom she gives so freely. She gives us her authentic self in this podcast. And although I've known her through her book and the sequences she provides, getting to know her through this medium has been such a joy. How about you take the deep breath you need and give Yoga for Life a listen? Your heart will say thanks. Well, my heart says thanks. So thank you very much, M. J. And the last one is Maranita Kay. Colleen has one of those extreme and intense life journeys that she beautifully used for growth and shares with us. I say this not because I know her, but because I read her book as well. Even when most of us might not have been through those same experiences, we will all be able to relate to the underlying feelings, fears, and necessary path of growth. And in this way, we can all benefit from listening. Thanks, Colleen. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thank you, Maranita. So, you guys just DM me and we'll get you all set up. Thank you so much. Namaste. Every week, we will clear the slate and begin each podcast with a short meditation. You don't have to know how to meditate, you just sit. So find an easy seat. This is a meditation that goes along with Roshi Joan Halifax's podcast on grieving, death, service, and love. One of her lessons is we need to be in the world with a strong back body of equanimity and a soft front body of compassion. Let's do this. Close your eyes. Bow your head. Bring your breath into your back body and feel your back body broaden. Keep that broadness of your back body and lift your chin and your chest. Notice your front body. Feel your front body melt. The front body of compassion. Watch your breath. Lean into the back body of equanimity. Feel the soft front body of compassion. Feel the receptivity, the love, and the strength. Please come back to this feeling, broad back body, soft front body. So often we're running around the world with a squeezed back body thinking we need to prove something, and a hard, Front body for fear of being vulnerable. So, in this meditation, we melt the armor so we can feel deeply, and we spread the back body so that we are held within our vulnerability. Gather your hands, bow your head, dedicate this practice remembering our theme, death, grief, love, and service. Namaste. Roshi Joan Halifax is a Buddhist teacher, social activist, pioneer in end-of-life care field, and abbot of Upaya Zen Center. I personally consider Roshi Joan a mentor. I may venture to say a heroine. When my mother died, I thought that as a practitioner, I was supposed to realize the truth of impermanence and shouldn't be so deeply affected by grief. Then I was on a bus when I got a call from Roshi and she cried with me on the phone and told me that this was one of the most difficult things that I will go through. She gave me permission to grieve. Her empathy, humanness, depth of study, fearlessness, compassion, and vulnerability will cut to your soul. I honestly cannot believe that I had the guts to ask her and that she answered yes makes this one of the most exciting and humbling days of my life. Gather your hands in front of your heart. Bow your head and join me in welcoming the beloved Roshi Joan Halifax. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Colleen, thank you. It's an honor. I'm very moved to recall that moment of connection so many years ago over the loss of your mother. And I hope I can share
0: what little I know in relation to grief and also in relation to service. Mother Teresa said that the only true path to peace is through service. So I can only imagine that you are at peace. You've spent much of your life serving that that most turn away from, human beings that are at the end of their time, be it illness or execution. Will you address this? And if there is a danger of over-serving...
1: I'm reminded of some words of Terry Tempest Williams, who's a storyteller. He wrote, a good friend of mine said you are married to sorrow. And I looked at him and said, I'm not married to sorrow. I just choose not to look away. I've reflected a long time on those lines. And I think that the capacity, the heart, the energy, and the courage to come alongside any kind of suffering whether it's the suffering of a dying person, the suffering of a person who is due to be executed, the suffering of a child or a spouse, but even the suffering say, of a politician whom one finds to be deeply misaligned with the values that you care about, but that still is suffering. And how to do that in a way that does not lead to distress is a practice. And it takes, I believe, the capacity to be really grounded, to have the ability to let go of external distractions and to drop into the body and to downregulate, and to bring your attention to the experience of simply being present for your own experience as it is. And it also means that we're in that touching in to our motivation. Why are we doing this? What is important about our lives that brings us in touch with the kind of suffering that we're presencing? And one of the most important things, Colleen, that comes up for me again and again has to do with our motivation. Do we have a motivation that is unselfish, that is altruistic, that has this quality of care and concern? that allows us to be fundamentally altruistic and yet it's interesting altruism has two sides and you know one of those sides is related to this deep groundedness and fundamental natural unselfishness but there's also a side of altruism that is unhealthy where there's over-identification with the person or situation of suffering and where we get overwhelmed or we enter into an interaction with someone who's really suffering, and we actually disempower that person instead of lifting them up. So the whole exploration of how to be in healthy relationship with the suffering is something I think that's really important for us to explore. You know, I go quite deeply into this in my book, Standing at the Edge, both in the altruism chapter and in the section on empathy. And of course, I wrote those chapters because of my own issues around boundaries, my own issues around over-identification with suffering.
0: You said something that has changed mine and Rodney's teaching forever. And you said that we need a strong, broad back of equanimity and a soft front body of compassion. It has changed the way that we are in the world, but funny enough, the way that we teach our asana classes. Because most people have a hard front body full of armor and a narrow back body full of, I need to produce. So with that, when you go into these situations with human beings that have committed the most heinous acts Can you access that kind of compassion?
1: Well, I love how you and Rodney have actually viewed the strong back, soft front metaphor. You know, another way that I view it is that we're trying to shift out of another physical metaphor, which is strong front soft back. In other words, very dependent front and a back that is weak because we really lack courage. So I think both of the ways of working with this physical and embodied metaphor are really helpful. Yeah, I like this image of this kind of narrow, ego-driven back where we're pushing for a result. You know, and it is an experience where we're attached to outcome. Like, you know, for me, sitting with Terry Clark, who committed a a terrible crime of rape and murder of a child, I wanted him to reinstate his appeal because I am so against the death penalty. But he didn't. And I had to accept the reality of what was unfolding in his experience, which was he felt, even though my co-worker Laurel and I felt such commitment to try to bring him into a state of valuing his life, even though he had taken another life, and horribly so. But he you know, eventually was executed. And I realized that any attachment to outcome would cause a distortion in me. At the same time, I was deeply against the death penalty. So I was able to hold both things at the same time, that, you know, he had choice, even though I felt I was against, I mean, I know I was against his choice. And at the same time, I could not drive him or manipulate him or insist or argue or fight <laughs> about him exercising the choice to have the appeal withdrawn. So eventually he was executed. So this is just one of those things where your working took a lot of equanimity and a lot of openness and an absence of drive,
0: but a presence of commitment. Do you feel like your compassion somehow got through to him do you feel like before he died he had a moment of understanding love and maybe even some remorse that's a
1: wonderful question colleen i think not so much through me i think more through my co-worker laurel who is a psychologist at the penitentiary of new mexico Well, I'll tell you just a very brief story. We visited Terry quite often, but her relationship with Terry was the one that was really important. I was learning, I have to say, from that experience in many different ways. But Terry was primarily focused on my associate, Laurel Carreher. And I feel that she manifested unconditional, unfiltered compassion with him. Not sympathy. There was nothing sappy about it. She was completely aware of the crime, the crimes that he had committed, and they were horrible, just horrendous. But interestingly enough, the state and uh, the lawyer really wanted Terry to reinstate the appeal. The state did not want to put him to death, interestingly enough. No prisoner had been put to death in the state of New Mexico in over 40 years. The personnel in the prison didn't want to be part of an execution. And actually, they brought in a team from Texas to do it. It's just really a very strange story. In any case, towards the end, when he was due to be executed, I'd say a few months before that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she didn't tell the men that she was working with about her diagnosis. She didn't tell Terry as well until a few weeks before the surgery. And then she told Terry that she would be absent for a period of time because she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And Terry's eyes filled with tears. And he said to her, I will pray for you. I will really pray for you. And she felt it, and I felt it as well. I saw something in him as he learned about her diagnosis that was noble. And, you know, one has to look not only at the crime, but at, and you know, this really comes out of the teachings from Buddhism. All beings have Buddha nature, and even the most cruel and even the most deluded. For example, King Ashoka who came into power several hundred years after the death of the Buddha, was a kind of warmonger. And he, in the kingdom of Kalinga, his troops just decimated and killed thousands upon thousands of people. And he then went to the Kalinga and saw what had happened. And he had this realization of the horror of war and of killing. And he fell to his knees with his face in his hands and he said, what have I done? So, you know, a person, even as cruel as Ashoka, can go through a powerful transformation. And I don't know if this is true, if Terry's transformation was complete, but I also feel that something broke open in him, and that break really happened as a result of his relationship
0: with my co-worker. So maybe there is hope in this crazy world. You mentioned something about it wasn't sympathy, it was empathy. Can you talk about what you see the difference between them to be?
1: Actually, I was talking about the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And, you know, sympathy is, in a way, a near enemy of compassion. Compassion is that realization of the recognition of the truth of suffering and our commitment to do something about it. Sympathy is tinged with pity, but it also can be associated with, you know, a kind of upwelling of concern. And then empathy is a resonance with or identification with the suffering of another. So these are three different valences. They're somewhat interconnected and they can inform each other.
0: One comment I've heard you make is that we are most afraid or scared of love and death because of the vulnerability necessary for both.
1: Yes. Love and death. Ask of us a kind of surrender that I think is very important for us to explore the quote that I've shared many times, which has been attributed to Rilke. We don't know the actual source of it, or I don't know, but it goes as follows. Love and death are the great gifts that are given to us. Mostly, they are passed on unopened. This really could be a very powerful our relationship points, a very powerful relationship between two fundamental human experiences. You know, one is love. We know what is true about love is that it cannot be held back. It is an act that is fundamentally about unselfishness and profound regard. It isn't about grasping. It is truly about surrender and vulnerability. And death, the same. Ultimately, death takes us. Death, whether we resist it, which causes pain and suffering, it is an experience that, in the best of circumstances, is one that is characterized by profound vulnerability. Freud saw the interconnection between the two, but had a kind of, you know, death he saw as kind of life-denying and love or
0: eros as life-affirming. You talk about grief as that it's messy and that has many faces. I feel like in our society, we're taught that grief is really about sadness and we need to get out of it and get on with our lives. Can you talk about the different messinesses of grief and its many faces?
1: Well, I'll try to. You know, Colleen, we are experiencing a change at this time of enormous proportions, including this pandemic, including a kind of catastrophe of individual and global economy and a a real social and cultural shock. But I feel that we're in a kind of crisis of the heart and mind that has caused, you know come about as a result of the loss of relationship with our, our daily structure, with social contacts, with jobs, and even of safety. And there are individual losses that we experience. For example, some of us have lost people in this pandemic that are really close to us or clinicians who have experienced not only loss of patients who have died of the virus, but also loss of agency, loss of control of their situation. And I also feel like we're grieving the loss of a way of life. And you know this is, in a way, compounded by what many of us are experiencing, which is social isolation. So we're in a very complex and unique situation at this time. And also, there's almost fear of connection because of issues related to contagion. So, you know, grief is about loss. And it is an experience that is deeply humanizing. And it's also been described as grief is love that has nowhere to go. It's this experience of emotional and physical suffering that we go through when we experience loss. And, you know, there are many different symptoms associated with grief, like it's difficult to concentrate. When we're grieving, and there's deep irritability, or there can be the experience of profound depression. Anger is often present with grief, as well as anxiety and and helplessness. So, you know, this is something for us to really come to terms with both that grief is an expression of love, but love in relationship to loss. And if we don't bear witness to grief, if we don't come alongside grief, it is a way, in a strange way, that we avoid love. So, you know, we can say grief is hard to go through, but it's also maybe one of the most humanizing experiences that we can go through. And it has the capacity to actually deepen uh, our empathy and to make it possible for us to open our lives for compassion and for insight. I'm not one to demonize grief. I have a lot of respect for grief.
0: Thank you so much for bringing it into what's going on right now. And I feel like that also, the incredible racism and the political division with the pandemic, with the loss. I know I've been alive for 61 years. I've never experienced this kind of grief over the situation that we're in. So just thank you for addressing that.
1: You know, I'm just going back to Terry Williams. She wrote, there is deep beauty in not averting our gaze, no matter how hard it is, no matter how heartbreaking it can be, it is about presence. It's about bearing witness. And then she writes, I used to think bearing witness was a passive act. I don't believe that anymore. And then she says, I think that when we are present, when we bear witness, When we do not divert our gaze, something is revealed. The very marrow of life. We change. A transformation occurs. Our consciousness shifts.
0: Well, we have a lot of opportunity to practice that right now. Switching gears just a little bit. You've pioneered some pretty radical stuff and I'm going to read a quote from you. The point of Buddhism is to see clearly into the nature of mind. The nature of mind in its fundament is not separate from this very moment as it is. If we get a peek into that through the use of psychedelics and theogens, then wonderful. You've also talked about people would say, isn't that dangerous? And you would say, yes, but so is gardening. Do you mind talking a little bit about this as it has to do with end-of-life care?
1: So in the 1970s, I married Stanislav Grof, a Czechoslovakian psychiatrist. And in that course of our relationship, I joined Stan as a partner in his work of using LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy with people who are dying of cancer. This work was really profound. It involved extremely careful preparation of the person dying of cancer in anticipation of this LSD trip, which was the administration of a single overwhelming dose of LSD, 600 micrograms, and of sitting with this person for 8, 10, 15 hours as they went through this extraordinary journey in their encounter with life, death, and also realization. And this work was very influential in my life. It was a contemporary rite of passage. And I also realized that dying itself was rite of passage. So I actually did not continue that work in that form after Stanton and I went our separate ways. But I have seen in the past years that work with entheogens has come into focus again. And I think it's uh, it's very interesting what is being done. For example, at Johns Hopkins on their East Campus and in other research institutes where psilocybin is used, probably more frequently than LSD. It's really fascinating that the value put upon gaining access through entheogens to the human unconscious and the positive effects of working with entheogens is present today. I personally am very grateful, but as Colleen said, it's looked on as by me because the power of opening up the unconscious gives me a lot of respect and also pause. One should probably be very respectful and careful in relation to doing this.
0: Thank you. I'll try to wrap this up. I want to be very respectful of your time. Somebody that we both know and respect quite greatly, Richard Freeman, who has done a lot of work. When I asked him how he was dealing with the death of his guru, Sri K. Patabi Joyce, he said two things. He said, he's sitting to the right of my heart and I always have access to him, so I feel closer to him than ever. He also said that he didn't think that he was grieving until he was getting a massage in Thailand, and they started massaging his hamstrings, and he started crying like a baby, realizing that's where his grief was stored. Can you talk about both of those aspects? Well,
1: that's really powerful. Yes, I I love Richard Freeman and also Mary Taylor. We're we're very close friends. Both extraordinary teachers. So I do feel that we carry grief in the body, and it is accessed, I think, in unusual situations. I can really understand, you know, what Richard is saying when he says, you know, in the hamstrings, you know, in that. Part of the body where deep tension is held, and it's almost like a secret place in the body because it's in the back of the leg. So I feel that many of us cannot access grief because we have not really allowed ourselves to be in the body. But I also feel there's something else important, and it has to do with timing. There's a kind of ripening of grief that takes place through time. And that time is important to be given, to realize that we don't experience grief in its full-blown form in a moment or immediately after the experience of loss, that it takes time to settle into that place in the body where it will rest. And for each
0: individual, I believe that will be different. Beautiful. Pema Chodron talks about Evolved beings having tears behind their eyes constantly. I see that with both you and one of your deepest uh, connections, Frank. And with that, it sort of feels like you're looking into our souls and accessing the place in us that is afraid to show this kind of vulnerability. Is this what happens when you've spent your life dealing with death, grief, love, and service? You know, I can't speak
1: for myself because I live inside the sea of my life. I'm like a fish in the sea of my experience. But I can reflect on Frank. You know, he has been through so much, both in terms of his childhood and a very complex family, also in terms of bearing witness to so much dying and loss. And then his own experience of uh, heart disease and stroke, and almost losing his life twice rather recently. And it is just also... We have such a deep friendship. I feel that I, in a way, have been alongside him at a distance, of course, but alongside him through the last 20 years of his life, where he also transitioned out of Zen hospice. And I think as a result of those experiences, so much has kind of dropped away that separates him from the present moment. I think that You know, in certain ways, this is true of me in a different way, of course. But I think we share that similar sense of great vulnerability, of tenderness. We resonate with each other in different ways. We're incredibly compatible. We realize that we've shared this kind of treasure house of loss, grief, and love. And we've met in that house. So, yeah. And I feel like whatever my life has been, that a lot has been, if you will, knocked out of me in a good way.
0: Wow. What you give to us, Roshi Joan, is such a gift, so unusual that you show up with your humanness, with your strength, with your willingness to be vulnerable. It breaks us open so, I just want to thank you so deeply. I cannot believe that I had the honor of talking to you today, honestly. I know that you love poetry and poetry seeps into your soul, and the way that you share it is so beautiful. Do you mind leaving us with a poem? Well, thank you
1: so much, Colleen. Your questions have been beautiful, and they also reflect your carefulness in examining the kind of teaching that I've offered and also the life that I live. So I'd love to finish this time together with you, Colleen, reading a poem by Ellen Bass. And the poem is called The Thing Is. To love life, to love it, even when you have no stomach for it. And everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper, in your hands your throat filled with the silt of it when grief sits with you it's tropical heat thickening the air heavy as water more fit for gills than lungs when grief weighs you like your own flesh only more of it an obesity of grief you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming face, no violet eyes. And you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you
0: again. Thank you. Everybody gather your hands in prayer and bowing your head and thanks to Roshi Joan Halifax for sharing her spirit and her soul today Namaste Wow, you've been listening to Roshi Joan Halifax and a conversation on death, grief, service and definitely love this is Yoga for Life thank you so much for joining Thank you for listening. To get the most out of this show, check out the yoga videos available only on the Himalaya Learning platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. To access exclusive content for this show and others like it, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.
1: This podcast is produced, recorded, and mixed by Cynthia Daniels at Monk Music Studios in East Hampton, New York. The theme music for Yoga for Life was composed by Rob and Melissa.
0: Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure